It is Wednesday, which means a new episode. Can anybody else believe that it is mid-October? That is crazy. 2019 is almost over. Next year's 2020. Justin Timberlake's year. If you get that reference, we would be really good friends. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. One question, one topic, multiple perspectives for each one. You are listening to The Young Catholic Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to, as I was saying earlier, a new episode. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Christopher Baglow about the same question. How do we prove God's existence? Dr. Baglow is from New Orleans, Louisiana. He graduated from Franciscan University in 1990 and immediately began a career in Catholic theological education that has spanned high school, undergraduate, graduate, and seminary teaching. After completing his MA at the University of Dallas and his PhD at Duquesne University, Dr. Baglow was junior professor of theology at St. Joseph Seminary College the Sue Ellen Canizaro Chair at Our Lady of Holy Cross College, and Professor of Theology at Notre Dame Seminary. In 2005, he began his research in science and religion, and in 2009 published the first high school textbook on the topic, Faith, Science, and Reason, Theology on the Cutting Edge. From 2011 to 2014, Dr. Baglow directed the Templeton-funded Steno Learning Program in Faith and Science for Catholic Secondary Educators, a week-long seminar experience for Catholic science and religion teachers. Presently, Dr. Baglow is director of the Science and Religion Initiative at Notre Dame University. His leadership involves the creation and direction of programs that assist Catholic leaders in bringing the Catholic faith and modern science into dialogue for the sake of the new evangelization. And so, without further ado, let's begin. Are you ready? You ready for it? Awesome. Okay, so, number one, Uh, Do you believe that science and faith discredit each other? If not, how have we gotten to the point where it is assumed that they do? I believe this quote from your upcoming book is a great starting point, where you say, Many also assume that belief in God, especially as he revealed in sacred scripture and in the teachings of the church, somehow replaces a scientific, rationally informed picture of reality, or at least makes it unnecessary. Okay, great. Well, first of all, this misconception um, kind of makes me chuckle because as a theologian, I know that theology doesn't answer how questions about the universe. That's precisely what science does, right? Um, theology is not so much about the how, it's about the why. Why does the universe exist? What is its ultimate meaning? 
right? What is its creator's intentions for it? That's what theology is all about. It's not really about how the universe works, right? Uh, and so consequently, so think about it this way. Imagine, and uh, you're, you're, I've, I've used this analogy many times, but now I'm using it with somebody who can understand it best. So imagine you are at the Jazz and Heritage Festival. Awesome, yes. Okay, all right. That's right. You're at the Jazz and Heritage Festival, and you're watching a set by your favorite band. You know, you can fill in the blank who that is. And then you notice that something that no one else does, that an alien spaceship has landed in the back of the field. And one of the aliens walks up to you and says, Margaret, um, or like, I should probably start that again because that's <laughs> 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 your name. That's true. So somehow this alien who can strangely speak English walks up to you <laughs> and you start talking to this alien. And the alien wants to know what all the noise is that's coming from the stage. And you say, well, well, that's called music. And the alien says, what is music? And you realize now you've got to explain to an alien what music is. And so you start. And you start talking about music from the how perspective. You classify the kind of music that was being played, hopefully Zydeco. And then you start talking about the various instruments and maybe a little bit about notes and chords and lyrics and poetry and that kind of thing. And you're putting all this together and how that all that stuff goes. The alien is listening patiently. And when you're done, you say, and that's music. And the alien then says, well, now I know how music is played, but I don't know why you all are so excited about it. Wow. Now you've got a whole new set of questions to answer or a whole new explanation to give, don't you? A new question to answer and a new set of explanations. You might tell the alien that music helps you transcend your ordinary experience and see your life in a new way. So music is about transcendence, right? Or you might say that one of the things you love about coming to a, a concert where music is being played is that everybody in the audience is just brought together by the experience, the music is about relationships. I mean, you can talk about all kinds of things, right? Right, right. I that you've got a whole new set of explanations to offer when you get asked the question why than you do when you get asked the question how, right? Science answers how. Faith answers why. Science puts uh, takes things apart to show us how they work, and faith brings things together to show us what they mean what their deepest meaning is. So faith and, and God offer a perspective on the universe that science can't offer, and science offers a perspective on the universe that God has left to us ourselves, right? And that's why they can never really be in conflict. Gotcha. That was, that was probably the best analogy for so many reasons, but probably the number one is that I am a musician. So that was, that was so good. I did not know that about you, but you're from New Orleans. So it was a fair shot, right? I mean, that was, that was great. Um, and if I see any aliens, I'll definitely let you know that it did happen. I'll add a piece to it too. Sure. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't write a piece of music to save my life or even read one. Right. Um, okay. So you've got that, but I love music, right? Right. It is possible to be able to appreciate something simply from the why perspective, right? Right, absolutely. Whereas you might be able to give me insights on why I love music, 
from the how perspective. So faith and science can actually help each other. They can enrich each other. When a scientist tells me about how life evolved, it gives me an opportunity to reflect on, wow, right? Why would God create a universe where life evolves naturally? And now I've got new ways of thinking about the why question because the how questions are being answered. There you go. Wow. So good. Good, good, good. So then how how do we prove God's existence, do you think? Okay, well, I'll tell you how not to do it first. Okay. There is no scientific proof for the existence of God. God cannot be squeezed onto a slide and put under a microscope. God is not physical or material. And consequently, God cannot be proven simply by an empirical method like science. The job of which it is to actually look at the material world and how it works, as we said before, right? So you don't, you don't, you you, you would never get to God that way. Now, I, I think this is important because there are a lot of people out there who actually think that if somehow you get this slam dunk example of something that a material process couldn't explain, then you would have, okay, then you just stick God right there, right? Right, right. Well, that's called the God of the gaps error. You find an, a gap in our understanding, you stick God in it. Now, what happens when our understanding progresses? There is no place for God, right? Right. The Catholic approach is to give the whole picture to God. God causes all things to be. When they cause each other, which he gives them the power to do by virtue of their existence, that's when science picks up and starts telling us things, right? Um, But from the Catholic perspective, the more that creatures can do, the more that the world can do, the more it shows forth the glory of God. So if the world can naturally produce life, if the universe can naturally produce life, that's not an argument against God's existence. From a Catholic perspective, that shows the glory and power and majesty and beauty of God. Right? Right. It's an argument for God's existence, we would absolutely say. Now, so then the question is, well, how can I prove God's existence? Um, I'm going to give you two answers to that question. I'm going to give you an answer that a philosopher might give. Okay. And then I'm going to give you an answer that I think is, is much better, right? All right. The, the philosopher, rightly, and by the way, I'm not discrediting the philosopher when I say that, but the philosopher's job is to see how far reason can go, right? Um, a philosopher would probably point you to the fact that all throughout everywhere in our experience, everything that we see, its existence is contingent on the existence of other things, Right. So, Margaret, if the proton wasn't stable, you would not exist right now. You exist only if the proton is stable. Now, notice I didn't say, Margaret, you only exist if your parents have you, right? I'm not talking about what happened in the past. I'm talking about right now. If the Earth did not have a um, gravitational field and an environment of a certain range, you wouldn't exist right now. Neither would I, right? Um In other words, there are all these only if beings. Go through the universe and everything we know exists only if other things exist. Now, the question that a philosopher would ask then would be, um, if all we know exists only if other things exist, well, wouldn't it be the case that nothing could exist unless there was some absolutely necessary being holding all of those things in existence and giving them the gift of existence, to put it poetically, right? And there you have a philosophical argument for the existence of God, right? 
That's that's great. It's compelling, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so let me go to what I think is a better one. I think that one's good. And you can have them both, by the way. It's not like these things are in competition, like you got to choose one or the other. Okay. But remember that for a Christian, faith is the first and most fundamental relationship with God. And that faith is a response to God that goes beyond the ordinary way that we normally understand things. And as uh, that are around us, objects, things like, you know, right? but actually moves towards more like the knowledge that comes from love and a personal relationship. There's a famous poet, one of the greatest poets of the 19th century, was a Catholic convert and a Jesuit named Gerard Manley Hopkins. And he had another friend, he went to Oxford, and he had another friend from Oxford who became a rather famous writer himself, Robert Bridges. And Bridges wanted to ask him one day, he said, you know, um, you know, what, what would I need to, you know, what, what do I need to know in order to become a Catholic? And he was asking him just because he was curious, not because, you know, I'm not really sure he was really interested in it, but he was like, you know, what do I need to do, you know, and um, in order to know that the Catholic faith is true. And he said, give away alms to the poor, give away belongings to the poor. And Bridges was confused by that. He goes, that's an action. I was asking you for an argument. And Hopkins said, if you live the way a Christian lives, if you live and do the things that are unique, right, you'll come to understand it from the inside and you won't need a proof. When I taught fundamental theology, which is the first course that seminarians take, and it's about the principles and methods of theology, I noted that if you struggle with your faith, there there are three things to do. The first one is to pray, right? Of course, of course. Tell God you're upset that you find it so hard to believe, <laughs> right? Uh, I once told a young person who came to me in a crisis of faith, and I said, tell Jesus you're really angry that he doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see the reaction on the person's face of just... <laughs> Talk to God about these things. Treat God as if God is the source of reality, and you may come to realize that this is something that is evident in a way that your mere intellect could never come to, right? Ask questions and study is the second thing. Make sure you really understand what you mean when you talk about God, right? And then finally, try to live it. Just try to live it just for a few days. You know what I mean? Anybody can do that. People people can die it for a day. What would it be like to think that the person who's panhandling on Carrollton Avenue in New Orleans is as important as you are. What would that be like? You know what I mean? <laughs> so anyway, there you go. That's I'll throw, that, that I just wanted to throw that one out there. Is there any scientific mm-hmm. proof to show that Jesus was God and actually existed? Um, no. <laughs> Someone might point to the Shroud of Turin, but the verdict is out on that, right? All science can do is bring us to a point where we can say, we can't come up with an explanation for this. And so I guess in that sense, I would argue that the resurrection of Jesus and specifically the behavior of his disciples after their claim that he rose, beggars explanation. You can't really come up with a good explanation for what they did, right? Other than that, you could say, at the very least, you just have to say, I don't know why they do 
why they did what they did. I think that every opportunity to discredit them, et cetera, and so on, and their willingness to die, right, uh, for this proclamation that Jesus is risen from the dead, um, is, is very, very important. But only science, science can only do that, right? Science could go into an empty tomb right. and say, somebody was here, but that would leave you with maybe we don't know how, you know what I mean? Well, of course. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there have been all kinds of ways to discredit the resurrection and to say the empty tomb is not the result of the resurrection. Right? Um, but going back to the idea that we talked about a little bit before, when you begin to think about the resurrection in terms of questions about why the universe exists, you realize that the hope of Christians is actually the most beautiful thing, right? And, yeah, and begins to draw you into a new way of it. Here's the thing. We, we live in a culture where if we can't prove something through science – we think that it's not true. And that's dumb because the fact is, is that the greatest things in life can't be proven by science. I can't prove my wife loves me. I know she loves me. But if I tried to prove her love, I'd probably kill that love, right? Or at least I'd, I'd challenge it pretty, pretty badly. So you've got, you know, um, who told us that science is the only way that we can come to truth? Because that statement itself cannot be scientifically verified. Like, Such a good comeback. That's so good. <laughs> I mean, show me the show me the experiment. Show me the the process by which you came to the conclusion only science can put us in touch with deepest reality. Once you show me that, you know, if you want that to be your assumption, I can't argue with you about it because your assumptions are your own. But if you but if you want me to be convinced that only science can, then you'll have to demonstrate to me on science's terms why I must believe that. And you can't. Yeah. And I saw some, um, I think it was like almost a, a comic strip and it was St. Thomas Aquinas in a bar and he's talking with um, a young lady and she had said, I don't believe in God. And I'm paraphrasing, but I don't believe in God because I can't scientifically prove that he's here and that he exists. And St. Thomas Aquinas says, okay, so then we can't prove logic, love, things that sure. we can't prove exactly. So of course, you know, right. God doesn't exist. And she's just looking at him. I'm going to, I'm going to get back to you on that. And then just leaves. And he's just sitting there <laughs> sipping his beer or beverage of choice. So well, I mean, think about this one. So the mathematical reality of pi, right? Not apple pie. I'm talking about pie. So show me pie. I want to see pie. You can't show me pie, right? Um, because pie is a non-repeating, includes a non-repeating decimal. You couldn't even, you know, people have contests as to how far they can go with pie. But yet I know I need pie in order to understand the world. Well, okay. In a much greater way, I need God to understand the world, even though I can't see him. No. Gotcha. I know I wanted to ask you, could you... Just for those who are maybe not even familiar with the Shroud of Turin, just explain just a little bit about maybe what it is. Sure. There's a remarkable artifact in um, Turin, Italy, called the Shroud of Turin, which has the image on it of a crucified man, um, including blood, right? And um, many, many people consider this to be the Shroud of that Jesus was buried in and have given interesting explanations of why this image only seems to be on the very most outer part of the, of the actual shroud. I mean, only the very top fibers 
and that it seems to be more a burn than actually a, you know what I mean? Than, a, than right. actually I've seen a, the images, it's someone to behold. Yeah, it's pro, it's remarkable stuff. And there's whole, um, there's a whole branch, like a very small branch of study called Syndology, which studies the shroud, right? Um, I actually went to an exhibit in, in, in Italy, in Rome, about Syndology. It was pretty cool. Wow. Um, so I think the Shroud of Turin is something to be reckoned with. At the same time, I still think you'd have to come to the conclusion from science's perspective only. We don't know what happened here. Right? I mean, that's all, that's as far as science can bring you. Take a miracle, for instance. Um, um, the church, the miracles of the saints are one of the ways that we uh, come to a decision, the church comes to a decision that this person should be canonized. And scientists get very much involved in that process. But the most they can tell you is that there's no known medical explanation for this healing or for the, you know what I mean, for, or natural explanation for this or that. That's, that's as far as science can bring us. And that's fine. Um, science is awesome and it's very, very powerful within its own domain. And that domain is the natural material world. And science is really not about proving things so much as trying to give us the best explanation for especially regularly occurring natural phenomenon, right? Like the theory of evolution, right? People ask me, yeah, people say only a theory. And I'm like, well, you know, you're using the word theory the way the common person maybe on the street talks about their opinions. Right? Like, this is my theory, you know what I mean? Um, but actually, evolution is very factual. It's factual because it gives us the best explanation of the facts that we have. From comparative anatomy, from fossil study, from, you know, all the various things that we see. I could go on through the list, but I don't want to spend too much time on that. So anyway, but there you go. What was the moment for you that proved God's existence? Huh. Well, once again, I think that's the wrong question to ask. Like, what? You know what I mean? Like, prove God's existence. Um when I was 16 years old, I went through a tragedy in my life, um, the suicide of my grandfather. And I felt that God wanted to forgive him and that I should too. And that never left me. And for two years, I fought against it. But then I began to realize that if the universe is not this way, you know, would I want to live myself in this universe if it wasn't this way? <laughs> in other words, if mercy isn't the final word on human life, with all of its failures, with all of its disappointments, but at the same time with all of its amazing beauty, right? How sad. Um, so that has animated me, but there have been many, many things. I'll give you another example. We always talk about God being eternal. Most people think that that means that God has infinite time, right? There was, you know, so the God's timeline runs along the timeline of the universe, but his happens to have no end, no end points on either side. And the universe has a beginning and then, you know, well, one day fizzle out and have an end. But that's not what we mean by eternity at all. Eternity is God's timelessness. God is perfect and unchanging because God has all perfections and is the source of all perfections. And so he has no before or after. So one thing have been amazing moments with my children where I have just let go of all the cares of my life and just given them 
what I heard one person call um, carefree timelessness. And in those moments, the whole issue of a clock or a watch or checking my email every 15 minutes or, you know what I mean, what lines I had to do or the fact that the tax return is due in four days or that all that stuff disappears. And those moments don't – they seem to have such a richness to it that using – Time in the ordinary sense that we talk about it is not a good way to actually describe those moments. There's before and after in those moments, but those moments are not best captured by before and after kind of reckoning. You're a musician. We live live under the slavery of the metronome. (laughs) Yes, so true. (laughs) Tick-tock, right? Uh, But the metronome can be transcended by love. And the fact that that's the case, the fact that somehow I can begin to taste and touch what eternity might be like through moments of love tell me that the idea that Christ's love conquered death, which is the ultimate end of all human time, and, and, and that he participates in divine eternity, God from all eternity, but a, but a human being like us, according to his human nature, he participates in that eternity. He can be present with me now. When I pray, he can be standing alongside me and within me. So there's, there, there you go. But none of those are proofs. I mean, nobody's going to be able to bring that to the bank, right, and get a loan off of it. <laughs> For a lot of people, there's this drive to always uh, prove this to me, prove this to me, prove prove this to me. And that's why I I phrase the questions that yeah. that way. So I'm glad you're – you're also saying that's not the best question to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People ask those questions because we live in a deeply polarized and fragmented society where there is a lot of rightful mistrust. Sad. So it's true. Prove it to me. But I would say that proof, the, the idea of only asking for proof and proving and proving and proving can be just as oppressive and totalitarian than betrayal, right, than lying to me. And telling me that they have proof, but they don't, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, proof proof is a very, very important where proof has its place. Yeah. If you would like, we can discuss the rise of scientific atheism because I know that's I'm very curious about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm not going to. I, I, I want to give a little bit of background. You had asked me before about where the idea of conflict between science and religion comes from. And that one's a little bit more direct and easier than the question you're asking, which would take a lot of explanation. I want to focus on where does the idea that somehow science and religion must necessarily be in conflict come from? Perfect. And it's simple. It comes from the mid to the late 19th century United States and the work of two men, John William Draper, who was a chemist, um, and Andrew Dixon White, who was an historian. And these two men and two works um, basically established a way of thinking about history in which science and religion are always in conflict. The works are understood by virtually all historians of science to be poorly documented examples of propaganda. John M. Draper used his book, The Conflict Between Religion and Science, Right or the warfare between I forget exactly it was conflict or warfare. He used his book as a vehicle for his rabid anti-Catholicism. 
So you got mid 19th century, you got all these Irish and Italian immigrants. They want their own schools. They want these things. Many American Protestants, including John William Draper, are very concerned about this. And so he tries to show that Catholicism is the real enemy of science. And many, many people get bits and pieces of what Draper said in his work through all, all kinds of misconceptions that filter their way to us today. For instance, the idea that up until Columbus, everybody thought that the world was flat. That's incorrect. We've known since Ptolemy. And Just in case anyone was still wondering, Earth is not <laughs> flat. <laughs> <laughs> Ptolemy, two, two centuries before Christ, had already demonstrated that the world was a globe. St. Augustine knew that the world was a sphere. St. Thomas Aquinas knew that the world was a sphere. Nobody that was saying we shouldn't let we shouldn't give Columbus money to sail west to, to get to the right was they thought that the world was bigger. They thought that the world was a sphere and that it was bigger, and they were right. Actually, Columbus was wrong. He thought that the globe was much smaller. What none of them knew about was, of course, there was entire continents between, you know. Between the uh, between Europe and the Far East, if you sail west, but you know we found out, right? So yeah, so you so so there's so there's that kind of idea in there. Um, this is where we get the misunderstanding we have of the Galileo affair. The Galileo affair is a horrible tragedy and an injustice perpetrated by a pope, right? But had very little to do with science. And really more with political and personal matters involving Pope Urban VIII and Galileo, Galilei, right? So, so anyway, so um, uh, Andrew Dixon White wrote later. He wrote about three decades later, but he kind of follows the same trajectory. So you have these two American historians who are saying this, and the idea of conflict between faith and science really comes from those two guys. Wow. It's, yeah. it's kind of frightening how far it's it's come now more than ever, at least personally. I've encountered so many people who just don't really have any belief in God at yeah. all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's many other reasons, too. Right, right? of course. And, um, yeah, and we can say that in the current scandals within the church, that the church has its own, uh, or, or members of the church have their own, share of the blame to bear. Yeah. So, but, so I'm not trying to shunt this off on other people. And that's why I just talked about the conflict between science and religion. The idea that these two things are always and must be always in conflict. And that if one wins, the other loses, that's not something that emerges until the mid to late 19th century in the United States and then spreads from there. Yeah. What approach should we take in order to avoid conflict of science contradicting the Bible? and vice versa. Well, let's kind of uh, apply the how-why distinction that we gave about science and faith generally, specifically to the Bible. If faith is not about giving us how explanations, then we approach the Bible incorrectly if we're looking for scientific information in it. If we're trying to get in a scientific account of the creation of the world, for instance. It doesn't have that to offer. The author of the, of the six-day account that begins the Bible, Genesis chapter one, was was not trying to tell us anything about how the universe or the order in which things were produced. Um, the symbolism of the text, which has been well known, is well known and well studied, 
um, is really about rejecting the Babylonian creation account, which says that human beings were created out of the blood of dragons, of a dragon, of a slain demon, that the universe was created out of conflict, a war between the gods in which um, the mother goddess's body is broken into parts by her son with you know, one part the waters above and one part the waters below. Um, it's casual. <laughs> not the creation story you want to tell your kids right before they go to bed. Okay, good night, kids. So we know that the author had a purpose, but his purpose was theological. It was not a scientific treatise. And the same is true with many of the stories in the Bible. The church tells us to look for three things, right? Truths of faith, truths of morals, and some important histor- essential historical details especially about the life death death and resurrection of jesus christ right the you know so you don't have a situation where the church has been trying to convince people for years that there was a worldwide flood i mean go find me a church document that tells me i have to believe that the world you know the, 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 the that there's a worldwide flood right you'll find one if you find one Send it to me because it's the, I'm sure it's the only one. <laughs> um, you won't ever find those kinds of things because um, we understand that the Bible is not telling us strict historical details and events like that in every case. Although there are in many cases, that's precisely what the Bible is doing. Yeah. So you have to be able to make it. Remember, the Bible <clears throat> is a collection of books, like a bookshelf. I can see your bookshelf behind you. So or a little little bookshelf. So now let's say I went over there and I just pulled one book off the shelf without looking at any of the others. And I said, this book, you have a copy of Gray's Anatomy, right? Or it's an anatomy and physiology textbook. And then I go around reading all of the other books that are on that shelf as if they are anatomy and physiology textbooks. That would be a mistake, right? The book itself is actually a um, one volume in – and a bookshelf with many volumes. In much the same way, the Bible was written over a very long period of time, about 1,200 years, and it has many different kinds of genres in it, right? Some of are poetic, symbolic, others are historical, and we have to be careful in each case to make sure we understand what it's trying to say before we just start treating it all as if it's exactly the same. Excellent. Yeah. I guess you you had really answered this. I don't know if you would want to add anything. Can you discuss the creation story in the scientific context? I remember when you and I were talking about these questions, and I remember you asked me, "Well, which which creation story?" And I'm telling you, I had this flashback to one of my high school religion classes of being taught <laughs> the different creation stories and how it's just been so long since. I've yeah. taken a religion class where I was saying, oh, my goodness, of course, there's more than one. But, you know, yeah, we usually yeah. assume the one. So. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you're talking about uh, in the Bible, uh, many creation stories. I mean, many creation accounts. The first two chapters of the Bible have two different creation accounts or are two different creation accounts. And then you have the creation accounts we find in the wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs. Or, you know, uh, we have the we have the creation accounts that we find in the Psalms, like Psalm 104. We have all, you know, we have the creation accounts that we find in the New Testament, like in John chapter 1, or in Paul's letter to the Colossians. We have all of these different accounts. The fact that we can have so many accounts with so many different details should be a sign that the Bible is not about teaching us the Big Bang Theory or some rival rival alternative to it, Right. 
It's not about teaching us about uh, a rival idea of about evolution, right? Because the fact that the details differ from story to story tells you, you know, tells you something. What's exciting about the first creation account for me is the symbolism that you find there. Imagine if you were living, trying to raise a family in the Babylonian exile, and you were a Jew living in the ba- living in Babylon, and your kids are going every every day to Babylon public schools. <laughs> And they're coming home, and they're telling you about the Babylonian creation account, about a, a mother's body being torn apart to make the, the, the waters above and waters below, about how human beings are actually the spawn of the blood of a demon that was taken. Human beings are the slaves of the gods. The sun, the moon, and the stars are gods and goddesses to be worshipped, right? Well, you believe in the one true God. So what are you going to do? You're going to take the details of that creation account, and you're going to come up with a better one. That's what the author of Genesis 1 did. So instead of being the spawn of uh, a demon's blood and slaves to the gods, human beings are called the image and likeness of God, male and female. That's amazing. I mean, this is subversive literature. This is resistance literature, right? This is like we are not – we are slaves, but we are not going to submit to the worldview of our captors. Um, how many times does God say the world is good in, in the first creation account? Do you know? Not off the top of my head, no. Seven times. Right? Now, seven in the Bible is a number that sig- signifies completion and perfection. I perfection. remember that, yes. How many times does God speak in the first creation account? Ten times. Where else does God speak ten times? Ten Commandments. In other words, it wasn't like God created the universe for fun and then decided to impose all these rules on us. Creation and human goodness go hand in hand. They're together. Anybody who is aware of the environmental destruction and the ecological crisis that faces us now has a vivid example of what it means for human beings to live as if the universe can put up with whatever we want to do to it. That we can be irresponsible as we want and that the universe will just have to deal with it. Well, guess what? We're part of the universe, and we destroy at least this small part of it if we continue to, to, to be that way. In the, in the creation account, there are only six days of making because the last day God rests, right? The first three days correspond to the second three days. In the first day, God makes light. In the second of the uh, – well, so in the second column, if you think about these as columns, right, God makes light. God, uh, and then on the fourth day, he makes lights. On the second day, he makes the heavens and the, and the oceans. And on the fifth day, he makes birds and fish. Right? On the third day, he makes the land and the vegetation. And on the sixth day, God makes human beings and the animals who live in the ground. In other words, the point is, is that the world is made out of wisdom. It's, it was made intelligently to support life. Right? To be a blessing for the creatures who dwell in it. That's what the first creation account is about. Right? John Paul II put it great, wonderfully in a single sentence. He said, um, The Bible does not tell us how the heavens were made, but how one goes to heaven. There you go. What is the best way to go about discussions about faith with those who 
have no belief in God. So in other words, do you have any advice on how to discuss Catholicism, knowing that the person who you are speaking to doesn't even share the the fundamental belief in God that our faith stems from? Well, sadly, we live in a culture where any kind of outward religious expression is being interpreted as hate speech, um, as exclusionary. That's a that's a tough thing, and I think it's terrible for our culture that it's heading in that direction. But I want to set that aside for a moment. I think that the best way that Christians can speak about faith is not so much speaking, but more loving, right? Because as Pope Benedict XVI said in his encyclical God is Love, um, the Christian knows when to speak and when to remain silent and let love speak. He knows that the greatest defense of God and humanity is love. I think that small ways, right, Um, you know, the sign of the cross when you're walking past a Catholic church where the Eucharist is reserved, saying grace together as a family when you're out at a restaurant, not loudly, not conspicuously, you know, but reverently. the best example, and you'll have a chance to maybe look into this. I want to give you the best example in my mind of this that I've ever seen. And it's going to make me sad because it's going to make me miss New Orleans when I say it. And every year while I was at, well, every year for the past five or six years, while I was a professor at Notre Dame Seminary on Carrollton Avenue in New Orleans, the seminarians would have a big gathering for the, uh, the Endymion Parade. They would actually stake out a spot on the neutral ground and they would, you know, a median for those of you who are not from New Orleans, and they would stay there and they would stay there for two or three days, right? And then faculty, of course, could then come with their families, their children, and they would put they would grill, put on a big meal. Um, there were, you know, drinks available, beer included. It was always nice when my employer gave me free beer. Love that. <laughs> One of the things they would do right before the parade came was just stop and quietly have evening prayer together. How beautiful is that? Their breveries. So a situation where they're praying, many of them are in clerics, but people are coming up off the street not only to eat and have fun with us, but to dance in the street because we had a sound system too. Um, You know what I mean? To be together that way. I think that is one of the most profound examples of Christian witness that I've ever seen. And it was very simple, very joyful, and very fun. What a good time. Yeah, yeah. Um, If we live within the box that we have been stuffed into by our post-Christian society, we're not going to reach anybody. But if we show them that we can live all of the good things of this world in a way in which we don't abuse them, right? But we also always have open hands and open hearts to the world, to a suffering and alienated world, I think that that's the best way to talk to talk about faith. I know I didn't say what we're talking about. Another great way is that if a person wants to talk to you about faith, you should tell them about about those moments in your own life, right? Where God is not proven but evident. And you know, don't feel like you have to argue with them about points of doctrine or any of those kinds of things. You know what I mean? This isn't this isn't confirmation class. It's or High school religion class, you know, it's it's an invitation. The church proposes she should not ever impose. But that's all I'll say about that. I love that line. 
The church. Oh, that's such a good line. I want to like get it framed or from John Paul II. Virtually every good thing I say, I steal from John Paul II. For most people, they would say the exact same thing because he's just so much wisdom, so much yeah. grace, and wonderful. Oh yeah, he's fantastic. In your upcoming book, I noticed that you referenced an event that happened in. Um, Iraq about different artifacts being discovered. It was I found it fascinating. I was just wondering, in terms of where you heard about this this event, if you had any advice on where us who are not necessarily involved in exactly in the same field that you are in, yeah. where yeah. where we can kind of find this information. Well, this, uh, I mean, this, the thing we discussed, the news story about Mosul in Iraq. Uh, Mosul is actually located on the spot where uh, the capital of Babylon once was, Nineveh. And there was a mosque there that was um, basically created there in honor of the prophet Jonah. Um, ISIS destroyed it. And what happened was is that under the rubble, they actually found the remains of Sennacherib's palace. Um, Sennacherib, who was the uh, who was the Babylonian king, who actually attacked the northern kingdom of Israel and came all the way to the walls of Jerusalem and only just almost destroyed them. Isaiah talks about him in the in his book and it prophesies that they should wait and be patient and not make you know not not try to make alliances and that kind of thing in order to overcome. It's a it's a really a Remarkable thing that we now have this there, but it shows us that the Bible does have history in it and that there are real things there. And the question would then be, well, where do you find those real things? Where do you find the, you know, good examples of biblical archaeology and that kind of thing? Um, and I just don't have one particular place that you go to, but I could give you a good recipe for it if you find a news story about this. Right. Um, and this is also true about claims, scientific claims generally. When something is, is presented by the media, that does not necessarily mean that it's been well-documented or well-established. It just means that people will be interested in it. So you should read it very carefully and make sure that this is not just something that one scientist happens to think, right, but demonstrates a kind of scientific consensus. You know what I mean? That, that, that kind of thing. And those, you know, sometimes are hard to manage, but always – Always be careful. In fact, I would say never go out and immediately say, and I read this news article, therefore, blah, 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 is true, right? Of course. But there are good things out there, and a biblical scholar could tell you more about books and those kinds of things that you could actually um, go take a look at um, that kind of collect biblical archaeology. But there's some fascinating things that have been discovered. So I owe you that. I need to go talk about my, my – got, I've got some good friends who work with Old Testament and New Testament um, text a lot. The biblical scholars. I'm a I'm a systematic theologian. It's a different thing, but the biblical scholars are the ones who actually are studying all these things. and can probably tell us the best sources for those. Yeah. yeah. What would you say to those who believe that you're biased because of your faith? Like, oh, you've studied this for so long yeah. and you're teaching it now. You know, this this is the only reason why you're why you're saying God exists is because you've been doing it for so long or what have you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so I first asked them, biased about what? Like, um, 
I hope I've made it clear that I want to listen to what science says, right? And I'm not trained as a scientist. I want to be objective about what, it, what they say and, and respond to it as a real source of truth, right? Rather than just say, ooh, evolution makes me uncomfortable, so I'll just pretend that that doesn't exist, right? It would depend on what bias they meant they had. They mean, am I biased towards a view of the world that sees the world as the product of absolutely overflowing mercy and love? Yeah, I'm biased. Am I biased towards the idea that I should never let race, class, culture, habit, or custom make me treat another person as out there, other, to be, you know, held in suspicion or even avoided or even worse, victimized? Yeah, I'm biased in that direction, too. Because my Christian faith teaches me that all human beings are created in the image of likeness of God, even the most, even the least. And, and it also teaches me that God, who is love, made this universe and he made it because he wants to unite us, unite us to himself in love. So yeah, heavy bias is there. But when it comes to what reason says, I don't want any biases. I want to just hear what the truth is. <laughs> That's why I like, I like working in faith and science because um, science is fantastic at establishing those kinds of things and helping us understand things that are true and not true. So, yeah. Why do you think that people are dismissive about God and prefer to be categorized as spiritual rather than religious? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say a person who categorizes themselves as spiritual necessarily rejects God, right? So they might be – I think a lot of people are not really in touch with the fact that religion is a way of being spiritual. They see the two categories as mutually exclusive. Actually, if you look at the history of the human race going all the way back to what the artifacts of prehistory, human beings have always been spiritual, and they've always expressed that in religious ways, right? Right. Um, I think when we talked on the phone, I talked about Rhino Cave in Botswana as an example of one of the earliest places where human beings came together and offered sacrifice. So, I mean, so that's going all the way back to maybe 70,000 years ago. Uh, I mean, the oldest, absolutely indisputably symbolic artifact is only 77,000 years old. So, I mean, this as far back as we can go, we find religious inclination. And so religion is about it, – religion is about binding oneself in community with others, right, in such a way that we all cultivate spirituality together and according to God's plan for spirituality and not simply our own. And that's that, that I think is, is something that's lost in a lot of people. Also, a lot of people in our culture think that for something to be personal, it must be private. Right. But I don't think that that's true either. Um, I mean, I got married in a church with 400 people in it, right? It's the most personal thing I've probably ever done. It's also not private, right? <laughs> um, in other words, that they, that, 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 um, something can be communal, not private, but also be deeply personal, deeply valued. I think it's something that a lot of people don't realize. Gotcha. That's great. Yeah. Well, those are all the questions I have. I don't know if you had anything you wanted to conclude with, or I don't know if you wanted to talk about your book as well, because I love it. So I know other people would as well. 
Well, I would just like anybody who listens, uh, I, I would invite them to check out the website of the program I direct at Notre Dame, the Science and Religion Initiative. Um, and the website is McGrath, M-C-G-R-A-T-H, because our initiative is part of the McGrath Institute for Church Life. So it's McGrath, M-C-G-R-A-T-H, dot N-D, dot E-D-U, slash science. So they want to learn about our summer programming. I want to learn about the big events that we do. We'll be down there in um, New Orleans, actually in Kenner, for the Gulf Coast Faith Formation Conference doing a whole day on evolution and faith on January 9th um, of 2020. So we'll be heading down pretty soon um, in just a couple months. And I'm looking forward to it because it gets cold in South Bend in January. So I'll need a break. Um, and then um, – and then in my book is called Faith, Science, and Reason, Theology on the Cutting Edge. And it'll be available in wide distribution, the second edition of it. There's a first edition that's 10 years old that's out of print now. Um, but the second edition is available, uh, will be available the first week of December. So if they're looking for it, just put Baglow, Faith, Science, and Reason in Amazon, and it should come up. Absolutely looking forward to just reading the rest of it. But check that book out 100% in the future. And I'll make sure to put that in the the notes at the bottom of the podcast as well. Awesome. Well, thank you very thank much. You. It was great. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Uncatholic podcast. Social media and a website are currently in the works. We do, however, have an Instagram account. That platform is most likely going to be used for updates on new episodes, and I'm sure it will grow into much more in the future. So check that out there. The username is all lowercase, the young Catholic, no spaces. So the young Catholic underscore podcast. So once again, the username for Instagram is the young Catholic underscore podcast. So go ahead and give us a follow. Don't forget to check the show notes for information about Dr. Baglow's upcoming book. If you are considering contributing to the UnCatholic podcast, feel free to check out our Anchor page. That is anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash T-Y-C podcast. And finally, right before I sign off, this podcast is now available on just about all platforms except for Apple Podcasts. I'm not quite sure why it is taking so long, but as soon as it is released there, I'll be sure to mention it in the next show. And so from one young Catholic to another, preach the truth as if you had a million voices. It is the silence that kills the world. St. Catherine of Siena.